This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Grow Your Business and Grow Your Wealth podcast with Gary Helt. Gary is an expert in helping business owners put together a plan that will provide a better future for their businesses, themselves, and their families. On the podcast, Gary interviews other professionals who share his vision, and together they share secrets and strategies any business owner can use to build a better financial foundation for your business and your life. Hi, welcome to today's podcast. I'm here with Jamie Hargrove, who is a founding member of the Hargrove firm, has started up another uh, internet-based company, NetLaw Group, and is also doing a lot with elder law, has over 37 years of experience uh, in estate planning and and tax work. Uh, Jamie, welcome. Thank you, Gary. Appreciate you having me on today. So what made you pursue the career of, of being an attorney? Well, actually, I didn't want to be a, an attorney, and I went to law school, but again, never wanting to be an attorney. I wanted to be a business guy like you, actually. And, uh, and then I, 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 before that, I'd gotten my accounting degree, but never wanting to be a CPA. Uh, but after I got out of law school, uh, somebody, uh, or before I was, while I was still in law school, said, hey, you got an accounting degree you ought to go into public accounting, get your CPA. Well, I sure didn't want to be a CPA, but, you know, it was a couple years, you know, passed a few tests, so why not? So I did that, got my CPA. So now I'm a lawyer CPA and I don't want to practice law and I don't want to be a tax lawyer, certainly. And I had this uh, lawyer in in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, I had about a 20-person firm. This was 1985. And he said to me, he took me out to lunch. He was actually quite famous in Kentucky. He was an NFL football referee part-time. So he's, a, he's a prominent lawyer and a guy by the name of Tommy Bell. Mr. Bell takes me out for lunch and looks over his glasses and says, Mr. Hargrove, we've decided that we need a tax attorney for our law firm. And, and we've talked to several and we've concluded we can't afford a good one. We want to talk to you. <laughs> so um, my wife knew I didn't want to be a tax lawyer or a CPA, practicing CPA. And I went home and I was making 21000 in an in international public accounting firm, now Grant Thornton. And, uh, and so uh, I said to my wife after talking to them a couple of weeks, honey, I got bad news and I got good news. And she says, all right, what's the bad news? She says, well, the bad news is I think I want to be a cheap tax lawyer. And she says, oh, no, well, what's the good news? And the good news is they're going to double our salary. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I must say uh, what I figured out pretty quickly was uh, being a CPA and a lawyer, uh, between you and me and, and your listeners, it, it really is nothing magic about that. But to the public, it sounds somewhat impressive. Again, it really just means I stuck it out to, in public accounting a couple of years. I took a test. No big deal. Um, but it, it, from a marketing standpoint, and that's what I really have a passion about is I love marketing. 
um, I realized that, boy, there's something with this. And, um, and these firms that I've been with all these years have marketed me. And so I thought, you know, what a, what a great deal. So, um, and then I realized that, boy, there's, there's a lot of, like with your practice, Gary, there's just a lot of people that need a, some specialty in their life that, uh, that I could bring to the table. And so, and, and in estate planning, you deal with a lot of people as you, as you do in your, in your practice, uh, that have all every day it's new, right? It's different, mm-hmm. different needs. Sometimes it's financial. Sometimes it's tax. Sometimes it's just family circumstances that they're dealing with that, that, and, and a lot of times that's what it is. They kind of get ugly. And it's kind of fulfilling, uh, very fulfilling, just to be able to kind of take all the broken pieces sometimes and, and put them together. Um, and so it's a lot of fun. It's a fun just helping people. Yeah, so, I mean, you're wearing a lot of different hats right now um, with the different, you know, different companies that, that you have founded and, and got going and everything else um, and are having great success at it. But what is it that makes Jamie get up in the morning and, you know, ready to, to really attack the day and, and <laughs> want to do this? Well, um, I, I, I am an entrepreneur at, at heart. So, um, so I like, like entrepreneurs and, and like probably a lot of your listeners that are entrepreneurs, they, they like to build things, right? Mm-hmm. And they like to see things grow. Um, and, and they like to, you know, they like quality. So, uh, and so one of the things that I find each day is, is, is we don't have a perfect practice in any of the things that I've got my hands in. Uh, but I, I hope it's a little better this week than it was last week. And, uh, and I hope it's a little bigger this week than it was last week. So I like building and growing and, uh, and that's really, uh, that, that gets me up, uh, it gets me up and going, uh, good. In going through, I mean, there's a you know a lot of myths out there, a lot of things that 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 people don't know, um, or they think they know, but they don't know. What what is one of the biggest questions um, in your years of practicing and things that that the clients aren't asking, but they really should be asking? Yeah, I think uh, you know probably the biggest thing is just the the procrastination is, is the biggest challenge that we have in, in my business. And, and part of that is they, they almost don't know what to ask to your point there. Um, and, and, and because of that, they just uh, kind of put it off. And so, uh, you know, the, the, and part of the putting it off is uh, a belief by a lot of people. And sometimes that's fueled by the advisors themselves that's that's giving them some some bad advice is that you know for you to be able to really do good planning you kind of have to give up something give up control if you're going to save tax you got to give up control if you want to protect your assets you got to give up control um, and that really isn't correct it's it's if you do it right um, and with the right team uh, and, it, and it does take a team of, uh, because, you know, even as I'm, I am very specialized in the estate planning space, I'm not specialized in insurance products, which are key to, to a good estate plan. And I'm not a financial planner. I'm an estate planner. That's different from a financial planner. So those having partnering with people like you, Gary, builds out the team. And, and with the team, then you can really assess what those clients need. And to your point, they really don't know what questions to ask. And, and sometimes we don't know until we really get 
dug in and, and start getting some good data and then start us asking them questions that, that ultimately give them answers to their own questions. Sure. So I know one thing that, that I hear a lot, um, and, and you can clear this up for us also, is, um, you know, hey, I have uh, power of attorney uh, for my mom's stuff right now. Um, you know, so when she passes away, I'll be able to, to take care of everything. Um, you know, does that power of attorney carry through after death? It's a good question, Gary. And, and as you know, a lot of people think the answer to that is yes, or they just assume it is because, uh, you know, we'll get clients in and say, hey, dad died, but here's his power of attorney and uh, I'm still paying his bills. Well, the only reason your only reason that works is because nobody knows or the people that's accepting that power of attorney or those signatures. They don't know dad's gone because a power of attorney in all 50 states uh, is void immediately upon uh, the person dying. So then what, as you know, Gary, what takes over at that point is either a will, if there is a will, the executor that would be appointed, um, or if there is no will, you've got to go to court and have uh, an administrator, personal representative, depending on what state you're in, uh, will, uh, will be appointed. And so you actually have a gap uh, between the death and that official appointment. So even though you might be named in a will, uh, as the executor or executrix or personal representative of that person until you actually take that to court and let the court validate it and actually officially appoint you, you still do not have any authority to handle things. Now, most states do give you the authority, if you have that document, to at least make sure that you have protected and secured the assets. So, for example, you could go in and change the locks on the doors and make sure that family members or friends or whoever uh, don't come in and start carting stuff off uh, because right. uh, the will and the other documents related to that may very well say things go to somebody else. So quite often in a family situation, you know, the daughter says, oh, well, well, dad wanted me to have uh, such and such in the house. Right. And, and, and only to find out that that particular item is specifically referenced and given to somebody else. Right. Right. Um, and so who knows. Right. So, uh, so those are the kind of things that, uh, again, most people, if they, and if they do know it's, it's, uh, the, the problem that you have in my business, Gary, is that when clients come in, even if they know all the answers, so I've educated them, I've spent uh, maybe a few meetings and they've got this right. Well, when they walk out of that door, after they've signed those documents, they don't think another thing about that until some crisis comes up, which might right. be years later. Do you think they remember anything about that at that point? Absolutely. No, I wouldn't. No. So, so, uh, and that's one of the problems that lawyers have, you know, Lord, we, we lawyers think, well, it's actually not just lawyers. It's actually husbands and wives. You know, we, we, we say to my wife, for example, I've been married 37 years uh, coming up next month. And I might say, you know, honey, I told you that last Thursday. We specific, I specifically said that. Well, and actually, it's probably just the opposite. It's actually, she probably remembers that. Why, what happened was she told me something. Right. And of course, I was nodding my head. It <laughs> looked like I was at understanding. I might have even halfway repeated something, but my mind was someplace else and I've long forgotten it, right? Well, right. our clients are the same way. And certainly when you start putting months and years in between that, they, they just don't know. So the part of your business and my business is kind of a continual 
re-educating and then re-educating them on exactly what they're going to need to do. So another question that, that, that comes up quite often, it has to do with, um, you know, going into a nursing home and either having to turn everything over to the nursing home or I have to, to, to give everything up where I don't have control of anything, um, any of my finances anymore if I do this. Is that, you know, can, can you enlighten us a little bit on, on how that, if that's true, not true, what we need to do? Yeah, it, and, and Gary, that's a, a very good question because it is a prevalent question, and it seems like it's coming up almost every day mm -hmm. in, in my practice as I talk to financial advisors and investment people and insurance people. It's coming up every day in their practice, and, and of course, part of that is we've got this huge bubble of, uh, of, of, of my generation that uh, almost 10 years ago, they started hitting 65. They said about 10,000 people per day, right? Well, if you think about it, uh, that bubble has been going from 65 to 75 the last 10 years. Well, when somebody goes from 64 to 65, not a lot of changes for most people. 65 to 66, not a lot of change. So going from 65 to 75 these last 10 years, we really haven't seen a lot in terms of just numbers of people going to the nursing homes or they're going there, but the mass numbers really haven't hit yet. But if you think about that big bubble, again, 10,000 a day now are not just hitting 65, they're now hitting 75. And now you got this for the next 10 years, they're going from 75 to 85. Well, you can imagine this is impacting a lot of people. And, right. and your question's a good one because the perception is I've got to give everything away and lose complete control. Now, that is a solution. Um, and the sooner you do that, the better. Now, there are negative income tax consequences to that, and there are other risks of that. So, for example, um, when we meet with clients, we will, we will devise uh, really kind of, there's really two main plans that we do in the elder law practice. One is with a asset protection Medicaid type trust. If you just use the trust, you are going to move your assets into that trust. You're going to start at a time clock that in most states is a five-year look back. Uh, California actually is only a three-year look back, for example. Uh, but in most states, it's a five-year look back. And someone other than my client is going to meet, need to be the trustee of that. And that may be problematic. If you're paying your own bills still and, and you're doing, you're still active, you're maybe you're you know, my mom's 91 years old and she still drives, pays her own bills, et cetera. But, uh, but what you can do is you can put assets in there that you want to protect from the nursing home that you're not necessarily needing to live off of. Or you can also do a, a different kind of plan where we actually put those assets into a family limited liability company uh, we actually let our client be the manager of that. We then move the ownership of that into our Medicaid Asset Protection Trust. And so even though it's a little more complicated on the front end, by the time the dust settles, what you end up with is our clients continue to pay the bills, do everything they were doing before. They're just doing it in a little bit different structure that it now has started that five-year clock. And at the end of that five-year period, they're going to have the opportunity. They don't have to if they don't want, but they'll have the opportunity to let the federal government take care of their long-term care. That's, I think most people would, would think that that's very beneficial and, and be more than willing to, 
to, to hop on that. Um, when looking at, I know lots of times what will happen to uh, with people is, is that they will have their son or their daughter, whoever the oldest is, that's going to be who my executor is and so forth. Um, I've run into lots of times where the son or daughter is not um, uh, real strong in, in finances and things like that, and they just have no idea what to do. Is there a way for the burden of this not to fall on a son or daughter that doesn't have the expertise to, to be able to handle this, this type of thing? It, it, there is, Gary, and, and you, what you've described uh, certainly comes up a lot, and probably the, the worst scenario is where you've got family businesses, and you have maybe three kids, one kid in the business, two kids not in the business, right. and, um, and, and what the clients will always say is, is we want to treat our kids fairly and equally. Well, when you got one kid in the business, uh, I can assure you what he or she thinks is fair and equal is a lot different than the two that's not in the business. Right. The one that's in the business, uh, they've got a sense, and, and it may be true, that a big part of the success of the business is because of them, right? Um, and so, uh, so the, to deal with that is really challenging. There's a lot of different ways to deal with that, but one of the things that we're seeing in more and more family business situations is actually the utilization of a uh, private family trust company. Um, because what you, you find is big trust companies um, and even smaller local trust companies tend to not want to be in the business of running your business. Right. Uh, that's kind of the last thing they want to do. Uh, the problem is it, it is in many times with family businesses, that's the, 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 the biggest part of their estate. And consequently, they're in a situation where they don't want to cut their two kids out that's not in the business. But if your business is 80, 90 percent of your estate, how are you going to how are you going to equalize that? So you're going to are you going to leave them into some kind of non-voting minority interest? And that has all kinds of issues. Um, now, if we're if we're at a point where we can do some planning and the clients are young enough and can qualify for insurance, my advice is to utilize insurance to help do that equalization. Right. So if the business is worth two million dollars and that's most of your estate, um, how about getting another four million dollars of, of life insurance? So maybe the business isn't going to grow as fast because you're going to pull some money out to fund this insurance. But hey, if you can get family harmony, give one business, give it a hundred percent to your son or daughter that's that's running that. Give the other two cash, right. and cash is nice. So oh, if yeah. you ask me if, if my brothers got, I've got two brothers, and if, if the family business is going to one of them, and my option is to get a minority interest in the family business or the proceeds of a big life insurance policy, I'll take the cash, and then oh, I can yeah. go out and start my own business, right? Right. Uh, right. So that's really the best solution is to try to avoid and eliminate with proper planning and the right products uh, to eliminate that kind of a situation. But if you, if you're, if, you know, mom and dad's 88 years old and they're still actually running the business, uh, which we see every now and then, right? Uh, then in that situation, it's uh, some of these certainly trust, voting trust. We, we use a lot of voting trust if, if they don't really 
don't have quite the size of an estate to, to justify the cost of setting up their own family trust company, private trust company, uh, then uh, many times we use voting trust uh, and uh, let the equity be shared according to however they want it to be shared. And then the voting trust can provide uh, for that for that succession plan of ownership. But one of the things with, uh, with that, that you have to be careful about in succession plans of businesses is that, okay, if, if my son, let's say, is running the family business, well, that's fine. I want him to have voting. And the reason we use a voting trust in that situation is well, what happens when son dies? Right. Well, where do we want that vote to go? Do we want it to go to his wife? Probably not. Do we want it to go to his minor kids? No. So the voting trust says, okay, yeah, as long as son's there in the business, right? Then, then son, you can be the trustee maybe of that voting trust, but at your death or disability, we're going to change that up. And that, that voting trust allows us to do that. So lots of times when we hear people talk about, um, you know, the private family trust and, and things like that, I mean, are these only for the ultra wealthy? I mean, how, where, where does this kind of uh, fall into play for how big my business needs to be or anything else, uh, you, you know, to think about putting into that? Yeah, that, a good question, Gary. And uh, in, historically, a private family trust company was certainly something that only the very wealthy people with fifty, hundred million dollar uh, estates and, and larger uh, would even consider. What has happened in the last few years is that states like Florida and a few others have actually created an unlicensed uh, private family trust company. So it's a, it is a separate uh, entity, it's a separate trust company, but it is un, unlicensed, which means uh, that you, you don't have to go through all of the hoops that you would have to go to through uh, having your own trust company. So the, the cost has come down. It's still not inexpensive, but if you've got a family business that's worth, you know, even if it's worth five or $10 million, let's say, um, what I find is one of the number one priorities for my clients, and, and many times, unless I pull it out of them, they don't actually come in and say, this is my number one priority, but many times their number one priority is family harmony. Right. And and the number two is the succession of the business. Well, and, and so if what the family private trust company can do is it can stand in between family running it versus a big corporate trustee running it. And so I've got something that's in the middle. So if it is a solution that actually delivers family harmony and business succession, and it may be the only solution that's going to deliver those two primary goals, then it's like, I think I need that, right? So, right. Uh, right. so that's why, uh, again, because the states have now eliminated some of the uh, regulatory issues, there uh, and the SEC uh, has 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 coincided and, and carved out some areas to allow for this. So it, it does allow for more streamlined approach, uh, but it gives a real structure to that business succession plan. Okay. You talked about family harmony. Another another thing that I hear quite often is that you know mom and dad have nice size estate, may have a business or or whatever into it. Um, son's growing up and he's getting ready to get married. Mom and dad don't necessarily like the future uh, missus. And um, their concern is, 
you know, if we leave the money to him and he gets divorced, she's going to get half of everything we gave him. And we don't want that is, you know, have you dealt with this? How do you, how do you, how do we, you know, get around this issue? Yes. A good, great question. And, and, um, so uh, probably since about uh, somewhere in the early 1990s, I'm, I'm not sure, certainly in, in, in a states that have a business and, and have uh, you know, a million dollar or, or, or net worth above, I'm not sure I have ever set up an estate plan uh, with sizable assets since the early 1990s that didn't have what we call a family protection trust. Okay. And it's to, address, to deal with the, the issue that you've just uh, addressed, Gary, and, and it is very prevalent. And again, it's one of these issues that many times my clients don't come in and say on the forefront, you know, when I ask Mr. and Mrs. Smith, uh, why are you here? Right. Uh, then uh, they don't say I'm here to protect my assets from my son-in-law and my daughter-in-law. Now, there are a, a few cases where the son and the daughter-in-law are so bad right. that that is the number one priority, but most of the time it's not. But when you ask the question, by the way, do you want to protect your assets from your son-in-laws or daughter-in-laws? And, and by the way, you may love your current daughter-in-law that you have, but the, with, with the long lives we live, uh, right. it, it's very well that your son will not die married to that one. And it may not be divorced. You know, she dies uh, uh, at, at old age and he remarries twice thereafter. Right? right. So you don't know necessarily even who you're protecting those assets for. But what we do is we create that trust that's attempting to control from the grave. But what we do is we create really another gift. We have two gifts that we're giving our clients are giving their children. One gift is the inheritance the second gift is giving it in a package, a structure that protects that inheritance. Okay. Well, who doesn't want to be protected? Particularly if, if, so when somebody comes in and says, my kids are responsible, I just want to give it outright. And a lot of lawyers will just stop there and say, great, let's, that, then no need for a trust. But then if I ask the next question, well, Mr. Ms. Jones, if, if I could leave those assets to your son, and leave them in trust for your son with your son having control and accessibility and yet protect those assets from not only the current spouse, but future spouses. Oh, and by the way, protect those assets from maybe texting and driving incidents, driving and drinking and driving, uh, estate and gift taxes that may come roaring back because of where our economy is now. Would you be interested in that? Well, when you ask a client that way, I've never had a client say, Oh no, I'm not interested in that. Yeah. You know, right. it, 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 but you have to let them know what the option is. And the option is a, a trust that again is not designed to control from the grave. It's designed to give that son or daughter and family members the ability to protect that inheritance, but protect it in a way that they can still use it and control it. Right. Right. Now that's uh, those are some great points because I know lots of times, you know, in in talking with clients and, and going through, you know, hey, what you know, what do you want to have happen and so forth. Even even when the kids are really young and they're still young, um, you know, everybody, you know, again, we all want to protect what we have because we've worked really hard to to, to get it. Um, you know, and that's why lots of times people come to me is to to be able to save on the tax side of things. 
Um, with that being said, can the act, um, asset prote protection trust help me avoid taxes when I go to sell my business um, in various states? Yes. Um, so, you know, some states like uh, Texas and Florida and Tennessee are no tax states right. um, and uh, no income tax. And, and that's wonderful. And if you live in one of those states and you sell your business, then you're not going to pay, pay any state income tax. If you don't live in a state that has no state income tax, and so you, like in Kentucky, the state that the, our base office is in is a 5% tax. Um, and, and most states are around, uh, I think, Florida, Indiana across the river from us is uh, actually 4.2% or something like that, I think. Uh, and I think uh, Illinois, if I remember, is 4.9 or something like that. So most are hover around that kind of that 5% number. And um, there is a, these asset protection trusts can be utilized uh, to actually avoid in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, avoid the state income tax on the sale of business. So if I'm selling my widget company for $10 million and I virtually have no basis in it because I started from the ground up uh, with, you know, a $500 capital account. And now all the equity I've built has, has been built uh, as a result of its own earnings. Uh, so I have zero basis. I'm going to get hit with a half million dollars of state income tax and a couple million dollars of uh, federal income tax. So, so $2.5 million. Well, with the proper planning, I'm, you, you might be able to to eliminate that state income tax, which means I've eliminated 20% of my taxes on the sale of my business. And so a half million dollars, when you start compounding a half million dollars for your future uh, retirement or whatever your future plans are, um, and being in the financial services that, that, that you are, Gary, you know, uh, you add a, an extra half million dollars to those numbers, those numbers compound a whole lot faster. Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, what about the testimonial um, charitable trusts and stuff? Do, do you use those very often? And, and what are the, the benefits um, with those? Yeah, another good, good question, Gary. The, what we find with clients is really a couple scenarios. One is where we have clients that already have strong uh, testamentary or, or charitable intent. So they might be giving large gifts away now, or they certainly want a big part of their estate to go to charity. Uh, where we find this most often is, is with people who may not have children, for example. Um, and if they don't have children, then they may have a much greater interest in and be much more plugged into uh, giving their estate away to charity or, large, or larger portions. Uh, but even people that have uh, children, we, we do have uh, a lot of situations where clients will come in and say, you know, I, I don't, I've, I've seen my friends that throw a lot of big money onto their kids and it's not done well. I, I want to limit how much I'm going to leave the kids and everything above a certain number I'm going to leave to my, uh, to the causes that are important to me. And in either of those situations, what we try to look for is can we accelerate that gift or at least the structure of that gift so that we actually go ahead and make a gift today but it's with a retained interest uh, that would allow us to take advantage of some of the income tax savings uh, that we would have by, by actually structuring that trust today. 
So for example, the sale of that business you mentioned earlier. So let's go back to that $10 million business. Right. If ultimately I'm going to give most of that business away to charity, uh, one of the things I may want to do is let's say take half of that $5 million. Now on that $5 million, assuming I've already done my planning to save the state taxes, I'm still going to pay a million dollars in taxes when I sell that 50% of that business. What if I put it into a charitable remainder trust? The charitable remainder trust sold that piece of half of that business. Charitable remainder trust doesn't actually pay any taxes. They right. reinvest the entire five million. So now out of that five million, I pay no taxes. I now have five million to live on for the rest of my life instead of four million. Well, guess what? Five million produces more income than four million, right? Right. And 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 what we find is that most people in that scenario, and, and you've seen it in probably more than I have because of the, of the nature of your business, Gary, is people tend to want to live off their income, mm -hmm. at least responsible people do, right? right. The generation that's the kind of the 60 and above, you don't touch that principle. Right. Well, if you're not going to touch the principle, wouldn't you want to have the principle be bigger if it could be? And it can be with that trust. And if it was going to go to charity anyway then that gives you the opportunity to not only do you avoid that upfront million dollars of tax, but you can now uh, buy and sell your assets as they grow. Cause right now is, and we don't do investment planning. And, and again, your practice gets into that a lot more from an advisory standpoint than we do. But, but uh, one of the things that ends up happening inevitably is you pick a stock and it ends up being a really good stock. And all of a sudden you got a capital gain that, that you don't want to trigger. And right. so you hold on to it probably longer than you should. Uh, well, in a charitable remainder trust, not only do you avoid the capital gains on the front end, you can keep selling that and buying and based on market conditions, not based on taxation uh, that you now can drive your investment, which again may grow that quicker, give you a stronger income for those retirement years. Right. That's, I mean, that's, it's one of those ones where that almost sounds too good to be true. Um, That's right. <laughs> but, but again, everything that we've that we've talked about so far just keeps going back to planning, and that's, that's right. something that that you know I harp with my clients all the time is is you know we're here to help you write your tax future, not record the history. And really, when 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 dealing with clients with preparing taxes and in. in um, dealing with, with family members that have passed away. Okay, now we're dealing with history and we're just trying to report it and put it all in the right places as much as we can. And the planning part is, is the side that, that I see that is just uh, so important in, in if you, you know, spend the money now to do all the planning, it's going to save you so much uh, on the back end. It, it, it's crazy. And sometimes it's hard to, hard to get through um, you know, to, to clients about this. Well, and it is, and, and, and that's really what I really love about your practice, Gary, and, and just the fact that you do income tax returns. You know, one of the problems that I have in my practice is once the client's kind of doing an estate plan or have that plan um, updated, sorry about that. I don't know I lost okay. the connection there. One, once they kind of either do a plan or update the plan, it may be years before I see them. And so uh, the beauty of your being in front of your clients on an annual basis doing those income tax returns is, is one, not only are you helping them with their income tax returns, but you're there to spot planning issues 
Right. Uh, and, and unfortunately, most accountants are not doing that. They're there for the task at hand, and the task at hand is to do the taxes, right? And right. so there's very few uh, platforms like yours where you kind of got the, the, the goal really is the planning function and what you're doing in terms of your income tax work and the other things you're doing are, are really just a means toward the bigger end of that planning, which as we both talked about is so critical. Right, right. What, um, you know, with all the challenges that we've had um, with COVID-19 and, and just kind of the way that, that things are moving, um, you know, typically when people are doing estate planning and, and dealing with, with attorneys and everything else, oh, we got to be in the office to sign everything. So somebody's there to witness, to notarize and everything else. How How is this changing um, you know, with what's going on, how, how is it from a legal standpoint, how, how, how is all this changing? And, and, um, I know for us, from a tax standpoint, IRS is starting to accept, you know, more and more the, the e-signatures and stuff like that. How is that now working with, you know, with you and, and estate planning? Good, good question, Gary. The, uh, most states now have a, an emergency order that now allows for, uh, remote, uh, online notarization and um, and and even the remote online notarization has certain requirements in uh, states that actually before COVID-19 came up, they were already allowing for uh, remote notary and witness uh, and remote signatures in wills and trusts in a very limited number of states. Um, the Today, most states have these emergency orders that effectively have said, look, if you need to sign a will and a trust, uh, you can actually do that with your uh, FaceTime on your on your phone. Uh, a lot of more and more lawyers are utilizing uh, the technology you're using here, the Zoom technology or similar technologies to allow clients to actually be in their homes and have everything witnessed and notarized uh, with the witnesses and the notary being in the lawyer's office. Um, and, and what we're doing actually in my practice, there's four leading uh, remote notary companies out there. Um, we're working with one with the founders of one of those companies now to actually implement uh, this as a permanent ongoing part of our practice so that we'll be able to, even after COVID-19 uh, rules are relaxed, uh, that we'll be able to continue to offer a remote uh, online notary process. Um, because if people are, even when this subsides, sure. uh, people are still hesitant. Um, and, and also they realize that if they've done it once before, why, what's the big deal about me doing it again? Right. So, uh, so we're right. kind of gearing up to be prepared for that next round. And I think you'll see more and more attorneys, uh, hopefully will be doing that. Great. What have I not asked you that, that you want to uh, <laughs> kind of tell our listeners about? I mean, you know, we've talked about a lot of stuff and we could probably go on for another four hours. <laughs> um, you know, but what's, you know, what is it, you know, what, what haven't I asked you that you really think that is important for, for our listeners to know about besides, well, how think, it, how, besides how to get in touch with you so they can, you know, get, <laughs> get, get some of the, uh, the elder law and, and estate planning done. Right. So, um, well, you've asked some great questions and, uh, and I, I and I appreciate the opportunity to be with you, Gary. You know, I, I think the big thing, and you've, we both emphasized a lot is just, is get the process started and uh, and make the call. Uh, uh, I, I I work out um, 
some. I started with a program uh, some years ago called P90X, mm-hmm. and the and the guy that that uh, that, that that kind of is your uh, online host of that is uh, what he always tells me is just push the play button, right? right. And the play button here is call Gary, right? <laughs> just get the process started because um, it, whether it's healthcare documents you needed, you know, there, what we find is there are most people, they think, oh, I've got a power of attorney. Well, most powers of attorney, some do, but most powers of attorney don't cover healthcare decisions, right? which means you're going to a hospital. Uh, who's going to make your healthcare decisions? I mean, one of the things that, the law gives us is the law gives us control over our own health care. If we don't take control of that, though, take charge ourselves by having health care documents created, prepared and accessible, uh, then what happens is someone else is going to take over that responsibility. It may be some family member that you really don't want making your decisions. It may be the hospitals or the doctors that are making those decisions. Um, so that's one key component that virtually impacts all of us. And it's amazing how many people have, do not have those documents. And do, if they do have them, they can't find them or they're not current and up to date. And related to that are just your end of life decisions. What do you want to happen to you in, in an end of life situation? Do you want to be put on machine equipment? Do you want to die in a hospital or do you want to die at home? Those are issues that should be discussed among your family and then documented with some critical end-of-life documents. Uh, that's that's important for all of us. Sure, sure. Jamie, I gotta I gotta thank you. I mean, this was this has been great. Um, I think we've uh, definitely uh, learned a lot uh, today. So I really appreciate you uh, you joining us today. Uh, on thanks, our thanks for having me, Gary. Yeah, so, it's been great. You know, again, today my guest has been Jamie Hargrove, founding member of Hargrove Firm, Net Law Group, and Elder Law. Um, and uh, we're definitely going to be, be talking to Jamie again soon. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.